All right, let's continue this morning as we began our study last week in Psalm 71. Uh, we're taking just a brief break from our Confession of Faith study. We are going to come right back to that after um, our study that we've entitled A Theology of Hope. And this Theology of Hope uh, dealing with the subject this morning of Deliver Me. Uh, deliver me. Uh, by way of a review last week, we looked at the uh, structure of this particular psalm, Psalm 71. And as we looked at this psalm, uh, we uh, studied even uh, some of the uh, unique characteristics of the psalm, how it does not have a title to it, which is very unusual. The only other place that we see that is Psalm 43. And uh, we also... we dove into uh, the authorship of the psalm by looking at a couple other psalms that are similar, and we came to the conclusion that the writer of this psalm, as so many of them are, uh, is was penned by David himself. And we started dealing last week with really the subject of this psalm really is this theology of hope. Uh, David, throughout this psalm, uh, writes uh, and deals with the character of God, uh, which encompasses not only God's attributes, but specifically, and I think we need to separate that out, it deals with God's perfections. Uh, now, we do know that God's attributes are perfect. We are not talking about something that is completely different, but we are talking about the perfections of the character of God. And we looked at really just verse number one, and we considered the subject, uh, in thee, O Lord, do I put my trust. So we see that David was setting forth this uh, picture of where his trust or whom his trust was in. And of course, his trust was in God. Uh, more specifically, we looked at how that phrase, O Lord, is a reference to Jehovah. Uh, Jehovah encompasses not only God the Father, but it encompasses God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So we are talking about the entire Trinity, or what we refer to as the Godhead. So David is not saying, I put my trust in God the Father only, or I put my, my trust in God the Son only, or God the Holy Spirit only, but I put my hope, my faith, and my trust in Jehovah, the, 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 the Godhead, all of who God is. This is where his trust is. And he says, let me never be put to confusion, uh, or saying, let me never be put to shame. So when any saint uh, is dealing with a time of affliction or a time of distress, a time of trouble, uh, there is no better place to go and no greater invitation that we've been given than to come boldly to the throne of grace in a time of need. Uh, this is not a, uh, a mythological throne. This is an actual throne. This is the throne of which the God of the universe is seated upon. But when we come to the throne of grace, and we kind of dealt with this last week, when we come to the throne of grace, we are coming renouncing all other confidences and all other trust. In other words, we're not coming to the throne of grace, trusting ourselves a little bit, trusting another person a little bit, and then trusting in God to make up the other third. We are coming fully and completely to God alone as our trust. Uh, he is the object of our worship. He is the object of our trust. To trust in Jehovah is to trust in the Father, to trust in the Son, and to trust in the Holy Spirit. Every blessing, whether it's a spiritual blessing, whether it's a temporal blessing, or whether it's something eternal, we know the most acceptable worship is to worship God. 
Now, there's not a one of you here today who has not had a moment or even this very hour when you have not needed support in a time of trouble. Uh, None of us will escape it. None of us will ever go through this life and say, I'm so thankful when I get to the end of my life, I never faced any tribulation. I never faced any trouble. It was always smooth sailing from the day I was born until the day God called me home. I had this perfectly ordered life. David is throwing all of that and saying, it's a guarantee you are going to go through times of affliction. And when you do, the only place you can go is the only person you can go to, the object of your worship, which is Jehovah God. So to trust in the Lord is to trust him fully, not only in times when things are good, but also in times of trouble. And we are trusting God not only just to support us, But David is telling us that we can expect deliverance. Now, again, we're not introducing some kind of a prosperity gospel that says if you just do this, all of your life is going to be perfect. But I want you to notice in our text this morning, in verses 2 through 4, David uses the expression, deliver me, twice. In verse 2, let's read those three verses. It says, deliver me in thy righteousness and cause me to escape. Incline thine ear unto me and save me. Be thou my strong habitation, whereunto I may continually resort. Thou hast given commandment to save me, for thou art my rock and my fortress. Deliver me, O my God, out of the hand of the wicked, out of the hand of the unrighteous and cruel man. The more often that we trust in God, I think this is an important principle. The more often that we trust in God, the easier it becomes. Not life, not the circumstances, but trusting in God, it becomes easier to trust in Him the more that we actively trust Him. Trust is not assumed. Uh, Just because we're in Christ today doesn't mean that you are fully trusting in God. As a matter of fact, there is still that old remnant of ourself that still thinks that we somehow have the capability to support ourselves. There's still something in us that thinks that when I get through an affliction, when I get through trouble, this was by my by by the sweat of my brow. This was this I had a part in this. It is fully of God in times of distress that our support we we rest in Him alone. Now, of course, David. Again, we looked at this last week as part of our introduction. This entire psalm covers the span of David's life. He talks about how he trusted God as a youth. He talks about God. He talks about how he trusts God in his present. He talks about because of his trust as a youth, because of his trust now, that he's going to trust in God till the end of his life. So that when he's in old age, his trust will have been the same throughout all the mountains and all the valleys of his life. David learned... How to trust God. David learned how to trust God. We see scriptures where it talks about David encouraged himself in the Lord. Folks, you have to learn how to do these things. You have to learn how to trust God. And you have to learn how to encourage yourself. These are principles that God is telling us to do. Not because we're going to get better at it. But because we can trust Him. We have to learn to trust God. And the more we trust the easier it becomes. David had a habit of 
of trusting the Lord. Not only was it a habit, but he actually practiced it. When he went to God, he was going to God in belief. He was going to God trusting that God would deliver him. Now, that's why he makes that very personal request. Deliver me. Deliver me. Now, you'll notice that this present distress is what's at the heart of David's prayer. And in verse 2, what we see is that David prays for his own deliverance by pleading God's Righteousness. Now, I'm going to put all. I'm going to put the outline up here for you, so you'll have all three of really these verses today, and really one main thought to them. But that first thought deals with David praying for his own deliverance by pleading God's righteousness. Now let's look at this verse, and we'll pull these uh, expressions and phrases apart. He says, "Deliver me in Thy righteousness, and cause me." Notice what he says: "Cause." me to escape cause me to escape he is identifying that the if if there is going to be an escape if there's going to be a removal it is going to come from the hand of god cause me to escape incline thine ear unto me and save me now in these verses in verses two three and four you really have everything that's contained in prayer We see that David is going to God alone. Do you realize that really going to God, trusting and believing in prayer is an act of worship? Now, I know in our modern church, we think worship is when the music starts. Or we think, okay, let's worship the Lord. And it always seems to have some sort of music or singing. It can be a part of worship, but that's not the end of it. Worship is when we go to prayer and we go to God believing and trusting in Him completely, renouncing any confidence in ourselves, and we say, I fully trust you, God. David was requesting this because his faith and hope was in the three-in-one. It was in Jehovah. How does he expect that? It's because his faith was founded upon the revelation of God's grace to him personally. Folks, when God reveals His grace to you, you can expect good from Him. Now again, our definition of good is what gets us in trouble. Because we think good means my circumstances get better, the affliction stops, my trouble ends. We, we realize from the life of the Apostle Paul, with that thorn in the flesh, God did good to David by not removing the thorn. Now, in our humanity, that seems like God was unkind, uncaring. But what was Paul saying? Paul was saying, but I trust you, Lord. If you're going to leave this thorn in my flesh, I still trust you. It's an act of worship. And so we see here that when we act properly, as David is doing here, he understands that as I act properly, I set the enemies of God and even my own enemies, I set the Lord against them. Now, what we, what we see this is sometimes people say, well, isn't David praying very selfishly here? He's praying for his own deliverance. He's praying for God to cause him to escape. He's, he's praying that God would incline his ear to him and save him. Isn't David being self-centered and arrogant? No. He's, he's demonstrating humility. He's demonstrating humility by acknowledging there's not a thing I can do in this situation. There's nothing I can do to cause my own escape. There's nothing I can do 
to make God incline his ear unto me, but he's coming with expectation. He's expecting that God will prove his own faithfulness to him. You realize when we say God is always faithful, that means God is always faithful in every aspect of his character and every aspect of his being. That means when you go to God correctly in prayer, he's always faithful. He's always faithful to carry out and accomplish that which he sets out to accomplish. Now, again, that's the problem with our prayer life. Sometimes our prayer life doesn't match up with what God actually allows and does. We say, this is what I want you to do, God, and then this is what God actually does. So what David was going is David is going, proving the faithfulness of God. David knows what his affliction is. He knows what his trouble is. He knows, as we learned by way of introduction last week, he realizes that one of his enemies is his own son and who is trying to kill him. He understands, we'll see in verse 4 in a moment, he's asking for deliverance from the hand of the wicked out of the hand of unrighteous and cruel man. He's asking for deliverance from people who are dealing with him in an unrighteous manner. So what is he praying for? He's praying that God would cause him to escape the traps that these two individuals have laid for him. That he would escape them because they're dealing with him in a most unrighteous manner. Now you'll notice that he talks about man dealing with him in an unrighteous manner, but he prays to God, how? Deliver me in thy what? Righteousness. See, the wicked act in unrighteous ways because they're unrighteous. God acts in righteous ways because he is righteous and he can act no differently than that. So everything that God does is righteous because he's righteous. His righteousness is perfect. His character is perfect. So his case that he lays before the Lord is pleading that he would escape in the righteousness of God. Now, we need to be, we need to be careful here. In this particular context... David is not pleading exclusively the righteousness of Christ. He's not exclusively, when he talks about righteousness, he's not just talking about the righteousness of Christ, which we know that we have all been delivered from the penalty and the, the presence of sin eternally by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We understand that. We understand that God is faithful to keep that promise to us, that he's not going to remove that righteousness that has been imputed to us and suddenly turn around and impute our sin back to us. We understand that. But what David is praying and pleading with God about is he's pleading with the faithfulness of God, which declares him to be righteous. If God ceases to be faithful, he can no longer be righteous. Okay, does everybody see that? If he is one moment, one instance, unfaithful, he would no longer be righteous. So what David is claiming and pleading for is the righteousness or the faithfulness of God. What is David faithful that God will do? Or what does he trust that God will do? Ultimately, God will avenge all of the wrongs of his people. Now here's the key. All of those avengings may not happen in this side of heaven. But it's coming. All of the wrongs that are done to us may not be avenged by God in this life, but it's coming. This idea that David is declaring to God is he's declaring that I know my God is going to avenge the wrongs of his people and he's going to save 
us from our enemies. Now remember, one of his greatest enemies at this point is his own son, Absalom. Imagine praying for deliverance from your own son who's acting in unrighteousness. David is experiencing something not a single person in this room ever wants to experience. You will never find a Christian who says, I want my son or my daughter to persecute me and want me dead. I want my son so angry with me that he wants to take the throne out from under me. Yet that's what David's dealing with. David is dealing with something that he knows there's absolutely nothing I can do to cause my own escape. But I know that there is a God who can. So David is praying for his own deliverance. Number one, by pleading God's righteousness. Look at verse three. Be thou my strong habitation, whereunto I may continually resort. Now, I love the continues in Scripture. I love the continues. If you want an interesting study, study the word continue or continually throughout Scripture and see if you're not encouraged by that. See if the word continue doesn't encourage you in the things of God. Because the continue gives the idea or the principle of something can always carrying on. It's a continuation of the goodness. What is David saying? David is saying, Be thou my strong habitation, whereunto I may continually resort. He says, Continue to be the shelter, the place where I can continue to go to. It would be one thing for God to be faithful for a time. It's another thing to know that God is faithful continually. And we'll go one step further, eternally faithful. David's pleading with that, and he's expressing, number two, full faith and confidence in the Lord and His commandments. Full faith and confidence in the Lord and His commandments. He says, Thou hast given me, or Thou hast given commandment to save me. For Thou art my rock and my fortress. So David kind of takes this one step further and he enters into, and he's, you can see David moving a little bit further and a little bit further in his faith. And you'll notice through this psalm, you see a progression where David begins by saying, ultimately, here's the big picture. Where is my hope? My hope is in Jehovah God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, in whom I trust. That's where he starts. But throughout the rest of the verses, the next 23 verses, we see David continually building this case, how that all through his life, God has always been his source of trust. And he could even trust God in times when David himself had sinned against this God. Now imagine being in a place where even though your past sin was wrong, and even though your past sin you've repented of, imagine understanding fully that God is still your God. Even though you've sinned in the past and you're going to sin in the present and you're going to sin in the future, He's still your God, folks. God is still your God if you're truly in Christ today. God is still your God and you can still address Him as my God. I can't tell you how many people are, are they are stuck in, excuse the expression, they're stuck in the mire because they're being held back by something they did years ago. That they've already repented of. God's already forgiven. And they're saying, I can't go to the throne of grace anymore because of that sin. David is saying, that's not the case at all. If David could commit those sins, and no doubt he's still reaping the consequences of it. God didn't cut him off. 
God didn't say, you can't come to me anymore, David. Because of that sin with Bathsheba, you can no longer come to the throne of grace. David knew he could still go. Again, is that a license to sin? Absolutely not. Sin ought to break us, folks. Sin ought to break our hearts. Sin ought to bring us to a place where we say, I don't want to sin against this God. That's what's supposed to happen. But David is not expressing faith in himself or confidence in his own works of faith, but his confidence is in God. David wants God to be his habitation. Do you see that? David actually wants God to be his habitation. I can't make a soul on this earth want God. I tried every gimmick in the book to make people want God, and none of them worked. But David wanted God. Why? Because he knew Him. If you know God today, you want God. (laughs) I don't have to convince you to want God. You want God. You thirst after Him. You delight in the law of God. You don't need a gimmick. David's David's not trying to trick you into following him. He's telling you this is the faithfulness of God and this is his character. These are his attributes. He's my continual habitation. He's a place I can continually resort to. He had God as his all in all. What is a habitation? A habitation is a place to dwell. It's a place where you reside. It's a place where you can stay. He uses terminology where he can stay, this habitation. He refers to it as a rock and a fortress. A rock and a fortress. That's his defense. This is who David is fleeing to. He's fleeing to God. He prays that the Lord would continually prove himself by enabling him to continually resort to God at all times. Do you know what David was fully persuaded of? He was fully persuaded that God is faithful. He was fully persuaded that God is in whom my deliverance comes. Fully persuaded. David is also declaring even some prophecy here. He's declaring the prophecy that even God, Christ, the Savior who would come, would ultimately be the Savior of His people. The greatest trouble you and I have ever faced is our sin. And through Christ... Our greatest trouble has been dealt with. Our greatest affliction has been dealt with. Our sin. David understands that. He said he understands it so clearly. He says, thou hast given commandment to save me. Now when God gives a commandment, what does he mean by that? Does the declared will of does God's will always come to pass? If you believe the Bible, it does. Now, if you believe man-centered theology, you believe God's will comes to pass as long as man doesn't mess it up. Mess it up's a big theological word. Right? God's will is always accomplished. That means God's even working even in the things that don't seem good. Even in the things that don't seem right. Even in the darkness, God's will is still being carried out. And David's continually understanding. He said, you've been my rock and my fortress He's declaring a rock and a fortress is something that's immovable. It can't be shaken. Folks, if you think what's going on in the world today and has gone on in the world since time began is shaking God, you don't understand the attributes and the character of God. He's not frightened. 
He's not, a, he's not being shaken by the things that shake us. Folks, all it takes for us is to knock us out of our routine, and we're shook. Right? Just knock your routine out of line, and you're afflicted. You're fearful. God is not looking from the throne of heaven and saying, what am I going to do with a depravity on display? How am I going to deal with this? God is faithful. Ultimately, David is praying God's faithfulness, this commandment to save me. Thou art my rock and my fortress. Having this, having taken this to the Lord, David now proceeds and he expresses specifically what his present situation is and he expresses what he specifically needs as far as deliverance. So we see that David's praying by pleading God's righteousness. But secondly, he's expressing full faith and confidence in the Lord and His commandments. Thirdly, he's declaring his need for deliverance by appealing to God's perfections. Now this is where David specifically says, here's when he pours out, here's my problem. Deliver me, O oh my God, out of the hand of the wicked, out of the hand of the unrighteous and cruel man. Now, one of the great blessings in life is to be able to actually speak to God in prayer. This is something we take so for granted that do you realize that for the child of God, when you open your mouth or open your heart to pray, you are actually speaking to Jehovah God. Now, I don't know about you, and this means, I mean, no offense to either any of you, and I don't think you'll take offense to this. But if I'm given my choice of speaking to you or Jehovah God, I'm speaking to Jehovah God every time. I don't care what the circumstance is. I don't care what situation is. I'm going to Jehovah God first because I know that's my only real source of faith and trust. You know what happens when you put two fallible people together? Sometimes you get a fallible outcome. All Christian counsel is not good. There are people who say, all I need is to talk to another brother or sister in Christ. Do you know sometimes you can talk to another brother and sister in Christ who's in the same problem you're in, and what you end up doing is making the problem worse. My, my fortress and my rock, my habitation, my dwelling place, is not in any other human being. If it's not in God, then I can't count on faithfulness and complete righteousness. But I can with God. So David is pleading his case. Now we know that David had a variety of enemies. We know Saul was one of his enemies. I, again, we looked last week how we're not convinced that this is who he was talking about in this particular psalm. But we are more and more convinced that he, is, he had in mind Absalom, his son. But there's also a man by the name of Ahithophel. Now if you know anything about Ahithophel... Ahithophel was David's counselor. Now, I want to take you to one passage, because I want you to see this. 2 Samuel 15. And I want you to look at what's mentioned about Ahithophel. Uh, he's not the one that gets the headlines like Absalom does. But remember, when enemies start to rise up against you, and I want you to get this as a principle, they're usually not alone. Okay? When an enemy rises up against you, they're not usually alone. You see, Ahithophel was a conspirator with Absalom. But Ahithophel 
at one point was David's counselor. Can you imagine somebody who is advising you and counseling you suddenly turning on you and committing conspiracy against you? That's a pretty hard thing to deal with. Have you ever had somebody that you trusted in and you thought you could trust them completely only to find out that they were in a conspiracy to actually destroy you? If it's never happened to you, hang on, because it probably will at some point. Somebody will come with good intentions only to be found that they're in conspiracy to attempt to destroy you. Now, Hithophel was that man who David at one point trusted. Uh, 2 Samuel 15, look at verse number 12. We, we can't read all of this, but... Uh, and it says, And Absalom sent for Hithophel, the Gileonite, David's counselor, from his city, even from Gilo, while he offered sacrifice, and the conspiracy was strong, for the people increased continually with Absalom. Verse 13, and there came a messenger to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel are after Absalom. And David said unto all his servants that were with him at Jerusalem, arise and let us flee, for we shall not else escape from Absalom. Make speed to depart, lest he overtake us suddenly and bring evil upon us and smite the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servant said unto the king, behold, thy servants are ready to do whatsoever my lord the king shall appoint. Now, if you read through the entirety of 2 Samuel 15, you will find David is really caught in, I know that's a real popular word now, a conspiracy. This is an intentional desire to destroy David and to remove him from the throne. It's being led by Absalom, but Absalom is now pulling to his side Ahithophel David's counselor, someone that David thought he could trust. Drop down to verse 31. It says, And one told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, I pray thee, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Now you see what David's praying for? God, turn now the counsel that Ahithophel gives to Absalom. Turn it to foolishness. Now, can God do that? That was a question. Can God do that? <laughs> Absolutely he can. can. Can he take the trusted counsel of a person who thinks they're getting good counsel and turn it into rotten counsel? Absolutely he can. That's what David's prayer is. And it came to pass when David was come to the top of the mount where he worshipped God, behold, Hushai the archite came to meet him with his coat rent and earth upon his head. Unto whom David said, If thou passest on with me, then thou shalt be a burden unto me. But if thou return to the city and say unto Absalom, I will be thy servant, O king, as I have been thy father's servant hitherto, so will I now also be thy servant. Then mayest thou for me defeat the counsel of Ahithophel. And I love what the last verse of this chapter says. And Hushai, David's friend, came into the, that city, came into the city, and Absalom came into Jerusalem. David had some friends in his life who actually knew how to point him to God. One of the best friends he ever had was Nathan, who actually told David to his face, David, you're the man. 
You're, you're the man in this parable I'm giving to you. David, just by blood, should have been able to trust in his son as being his friend. But he couldn't trust him. He should have been able to trust in Ahithophel as his counselor. But he couldn't trust him. But Hushai is mentioned as a friend. Nathan is a friend because a friend sticketh closer than a brother. And a friend will tell you what we're doing wrong. But he'll do it properly. He'll do it in humility. He's not going to do it by someone who has this all figured out. But notice these two people who were trusted in David's life. Ahithophel has a lot of similarities to Judas and his betrayal of Christ. There are a lot of similarities in types. We, we know that the Jews themselves were Christ's enemies. Absalom and the men of Israel were enemies to David at this time. David therefore prays, deliver me out of, oh my God, out of the hand of the wicked, out of the hand of the unrighteous and cruel man. What did David need specifically? He needed deliverance. That's what David's asking for. A very specific request. Not because God didn't know it. But because he was stating his case before God. God in all of his persons and all of his perfections was actually interested in what David had to say. Now, if you ever get over that, I hope you're brought to repentance. If you ever get over the fact that you are allowed to talk to God and you take that lightly, I pray God brings you to repentance. Because do you realize what a privilege it is to be able to actually talk to God and be heard? Look, there are people in this life, you can't get their ear for a second. They won't give you the time of day. And we fret and we fuss and we say, why won't so-and-so pay attention to me? And one of the great theological phrases, just stop it. Stop being worried about having the ear of fallible man and understand and rejoice that you have the ear of Jehovah God. <laughs> we are so worried about having the ear of other people that we lose sight of the fact that you have the ear of God and He's faithful to hear you. And yet, you've done nothing to earn that. And yet, God says, come boldly to the throne of grace in a time of need. How, how easily we take for granted David specifically asked for deliverance. He knew, and remember this, David is not coming saying, God, you understand, I'm coming to you in all my perfection. I've never done anything wrong. David came to God even in all of his imperfection, with all of his past sin, with all of his unfaithfulness, with all of the things that he did wrong. Remember that sin when God told him not to number the people and he numbered the people? And we look at that and we say, what's the big deal? He just said don't number, number the troops. Why is it a big deal? Because God said don't do it. Now we can get into a deep theological discussion about all the nuances of that, but can I just simplify that for you? The reason there were consequences is because God said don't number the people. David was numbering the people out of a sense of pride. But notice, David doesn't come and say... God, I know I don't have a right to be here, 
Can I say this as humbly as I can? He did have a right to be there, not on his own merits, but on the merits of his God and the merits of Christ. You have a right to be in the throne room of God, not because of your own merits. And I know right can be thrown around. And the definitions of the day are really messing up our theology. Okay? Because when I use terminology like rights and privileges, we're, we're hearing it through modern ears. But you do have a right in the theological sense to be in the throne room of God. Not because of your own merits or because you have the, that's your freedom, but because Christ has made a way. And so notice how he says he knew that he had sinned grievously. He knew he had paid the price. He knew he had lost the child. He knew there were present enemies. He knew there were present sorrows. He knew the fruits of his sin had followed him. But here's what I want you to notice about David. It didn't stop his mouth of faith. Like I said, if I could tell you how many Christians I've counseled and talked to over the years who were absolutely stuck in the mire, what they're stuck in is the, the, the mire of their old sin that they're still allowing themselves to be stuck instead of saying, God has already dealt with that. Move forward. Stop standing there. God's, God, is, God did not send Christ and just say, okay, now I want you to stand in the mire and just think about this all of your life until you get to glory. David still goes with a mouth of faith. And notice what he says. My God. Oh, my God. Not someone else's God. That word my is very, very personal. My God. You realize the same God that David declared to be my God is your God? The same God that David was praying to in this psalm is the same God that when you pray, you're praying to? So I said sometimes I think, now we talked about this last week, I think that's why sometimes the, the psalms get a bad rap, and I don't mean it in a, in a negative way per se, as just a devotional book. The psalms are dripping with theology. And if you miss the theology of the Psalms, the devotional aspect of it really doesn't matter because if I'm devoted to a God who I don't know his attributes, I don't know his character, do I really have any hope? No. Because what I'm hopeful in God is, is in his faithfulness, which is theology. I'm hopeful in his character, which is theology. I'm hopeful in his attributes, theology. So David mentions... My God, deliver me out of the hand of the wicked, which I think clearly shows his enemies. Absalom, Ahithophel, maybe one or the other, but maybe both. So David is using a variety of pleadings with God. And we'll finish with this. To obtain his request, he's using really five main arguments. And we won't see the fifth argument until next week, but here's the first four. His first argument for God is his own faith in God. Okay? So David's pleading with God with his own faith in God. Number two, he's pleading with the righteousness or the faithfulness of God. So David has faith of his own coming to and pleading with the faithfulness of God. Number three, he declares or speaks of the purposes of God. And what was David's conclusion? That in all things and in all times, God would be the Savior of His people. 
do you really believe that God is the Savior of His people? Because if I truly believe in the Savior, if I truly believe in Christ, my Savior, I have a promised deliverance. You realize there's nothing that can happen to us in which the child of God loses? Do we realize that? You don't lose. You don't lose at death. Why? Because you immediately, as Paul said, you enter into the presence of this God that you've talked about, you've prayed to. The Christian doesn't lose. Now, can the Christian bring circumstances on themselves that makes life very, very difficult? Yes, folks, that's what sin does. Some of these things were due. They were the direct consequences of David's sin. Some of this doesn't happen if David doesn't pull those consequences on himself. Now, is God sovereign at all? Is God's purposes? Absolutely. But sin has consequences, but it does not reject us from the throne of the room of God. So, he declares that God, in all things and all purposes, will be the Savior of his people. And fourthly, David fully believes that his own cause is just to bring before to God. In other words, David isn't timid about this. He's not saying, I wonder if I can ask God to deliver me. I wonder, I wonder God, if, 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 you, if, if you don't mind. Aren't you glad the psalm doesn't read that way? Um, um, God, this is me. And I was just wondering if, if, if it's not too much trouble. If you're not inconvenienced. And folks, I've heard people pray this way. If it's not inconvenient to you, I hate to ask this. I think you might be able to pull some strings and deliver me. He says, deliver me, oh my God. Folks, when it talks about coming boldly, it's not talking about coming in like you own the throne of God. It's coming boldly because he has said, you're welcome to come in. You're welcome to come, and the reason you're able to come sits at my right hand, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is your access to me. David believed his cause was just to ask the things he was asking for. Now, the fifth argument we'll talk about next week, David kind of bookends how he starts with trust in verse 1, and then he talks about hope in verse 5. And that's really the fifth argument that he's going to bring. And we'll deal primarily with uh, verses 5, 6, and 7 next week. And we'll deal with that phrase primarily dealing with, for thou art my hope. And that's when David begins this journey. And he, he, he reminds himself, and for, even for our benefit, thou art my, again, my trust from my youth. So we'll look at that aspect of that next week. Um, 